You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 24th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. On today's programme, Donald Trump wins New Hampshire's Republican primary. Is the world ready for what comes next? We won in 2016. And if you really remember it, if you want to play it straight, we also won in 2020. (laughs) By more. After that, we'll look at the possible end of reunification hopes in the Koreas. We'll also explore what the International Court of Justice could do to Israel as it considers charges of genocide in Gaza. And later in the show, we'll be joined by Monaco's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Faye, you've been digesting last night's Oscar nominations. Absolutely, Chris. And what a great year for the Oscars. We'll talk about the clear favorite Oppenheimer, but also the incredible success of Anatomy of a Fall. Thanks very much, Faye. Looking forward to that. And finally, on the show, we'll be looking at the new Serpentine Pavilion planned for this summer by South Korean artist Min Suk Cho. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Chris Termak. If you listen to political pundits in the U.S. this morning, Nikki Haley's bid to topple Donald Trump for the Republican presidential nomination may already be over after her second place showing in New Hampshire's primary last night. That may or may not be the case, but either way, it is pretty clear that we're nearing a rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the general election this November. Polls at least currently show Trump leading a matchup between the two. And so the question becomes, has the world really come to terms with the idea of a second Trump presidency? And what could this mean for American allies and adversaries around the world? Well, Tricia Craig is a senior lecturer in sociology and political science at Yale NUS in Singapore. She joins me now. And Tricia, I wanted to start with perhaps the obvious country, China. It's been interesting following this race over the last year. The rhetoric has been extremely hawkish from both Republican candidates, if anything, even more so from Nikki Haley. I wonder how this race has been watched in the region so far. Hi, Chris. Uh, Thanks for having me. So, You know, on one hand, I think there is a global understanding that China bashing is a bipartisan position in Washington. So hawkishness from all sides is expected. Um, You know, on the other hand, since the spy balloon incident about a year ago, uh, the Biden administration has been working to de-escalate tensions, uh, including, you know, having meetings between Biden and Xi in San Francisco. So I think that there's a fear that under a second Trump presidency, there might be less attention to those kinds of guardrails. So I think people are on alert. It's interesting the way you describe that, because there's almost maybe three positions at the moment. You kind of have Biden, who is trying to to sort of repair relations with China, as you mentioned there, Trump being the kind of isolationist and also quite unpredictable. And then Haley being the one who's essentially warning that there will be war with China at some point. I just wonder what China you think makes of all this. Well, I think that for China, Trump is uh, Trump is quite unpredictable. Uh, And, you know, when we talk about war with China, I think uh, typically it assumed that it would be over something like the issue of Taiwan. And Trump has been quite cagey about whether he would defend Taiwan or not. 
you know, when he was asked about it recently, he instead of answering the question directly, he went on a rant about how Taiwan had stolen uh, the U.S.'s chip industry. So I think, you know, a Trump victory uh, for China might change its views a little bit. But uh, but for the moment, I think uh, China is unlikely to risk war over uh, over Taiwan for the moment. Well, you bring up kind of both there, Taiwan, but also the trade relationship. Uh, the Biden administration has kind of kept many tariffs on China, but it has also tried to improve relations. I wonder what your sense is of kind of the state of the trading relationship and how that would continue in a, a future presidency. Well, I think a lot of people have uh, have often pointed out that the Biden administration uh, kept many of the same tariffs uh, that that the uh, that the Trump administration had put on. But I think, you know, when we look at ahead to the future and the possibility of a second Trump administration, some of Trump's recent and very specific comments on trade with China have alarmed a lot of people. One of the things he's promising is a whole array and spate of new tariffs. Uh, at one point over the summer, he suggested 10% across the board. More recently, he's been vague about an exact figure, but what he has been very clear about is the desire to move the U.S. away from integration with countries like China, but also the world economy as a whole. So we're really back to seeing uh, a more America first and really a decoupling. Um, in And what I think people are also pointing out is that unlike the first Trump administration, where not just in trade, but all across the board, you had uh, competing voices sitting around the table. This time, there would be far less opposition internally in a Trump White House. Um, and so presumably, it would be uh, more possible for him to push these kinds of policies forward. And with respect to a global regime of tariffs, this has the potential to hurt both the US and the world economy. So that America first agenda that you talk about is one thing, perhaps slightly separate from that is also Donald Trump's arguably authoritarian tendencies, shall we say, the denial of the 2020 election. I wonder what Asian leaders kind of make of that. Well, you know, I think that he has very much cozied up to autocrats and dictators around the world. And this is something that Nikki Haley has been uh, recently quite critical of him about. Um, so in Asia, for example, there's Modi. Uh, in Europe, there's Orban. You know, he's been he's been, and obviously Putin. I think when we think about Asia and the region, you know, that I'm located in, when we when we think about India, he has quite a good relationship with Modi, and Modi has really stepped up his efforts recently for India to play a bigger role on the world stage. One of the things that Modi is interested in is. Uh, containing China. So there may be some uh, overlap of interest there with, with Trump. But I think what we would see is continued relationships uh, and building relations between the U.S. and India, but with less chance of the U.S. criticizing Modi for things like human rights issues or his championing of Hindu nationalism, which we saw recently with the reopening of a Hindu temple on a former site of a mosque. Well, and just finally, you mentioned Modi there. There's also another potential bromance that was always talked about between authoritarians, the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. What do you make of that? Could could Trump and Kim Jong-un's relationship help or stop another war? Well, you know, I think when we, th you know, I think all of these relationships, bromance or not, they're all transactional. And I think the conditions for a renewal of that 
bromance um, are a little bit different this time around. Kim Jong-un has more backing from Putin and to some extent from China than he did when Trump was in office. So he may be less receptive to Trump's overtures and, you know, sending him flowers and stuff. Um, also, I think, remember, the government in Seoul right now under uh, Yoon Suk-yeol is less committed to dialogue with North Korea. He wants more denuclearization. So there'd be a lot more pressure from U.S.'s ally, South Korea, not to pursue that kind of cozy relationship with the North and Kim Jong-un. Thanks very much, Tricia. That was Tricia Craig in Singapore. Now, here's Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Chris. Turkish MPs approved Sweden's NATO membership bid on Tuesday, a key step in the Nordic country's push to join the military alliance. The vote followed months of delays and obstruction by Turkey's president, Recep Erdogan. U.S. forces struck three facilities in Iraq, which Washington says were used by Iran-backed militia groups. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the strikes were a response to attacks against U.S. and coalition allies in Iraq and Syria. And Thailand's constitutional court has dismissed a case against the political leader Peter Limjarunrat, which could have seen him removed from parliament. Peter, who leads the Progressive Party Move Forward, was accused of violating election rules for running for office while holding shares in a media company. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Chris. Thanks very much, Emma. Now picking up at the end of our last item. For decades now, despite frosty relations and no official end to the Korean War, the hope for reunification between North and South Korea has always been there. That may no longer be the case now after North Korean leader Kim Jong-un reportedly destroyed an archway outside of Pyongyang that symbolized these reunification hopes and was built after a landmark summit between the two nations in 2000. While Professor Gordon Flake is founder and chief executive officer of the Perth U.S. Asia Center at the University of Western Australia, he joins me now. Professor Gordon, uh, it's interesting, perhaps, aside from also this news of the destroyed archway, there seem to be a lot of, I guess, fresh disagreements at the moment among analysts over whether North Korea, North Korea really wants war or not. Where do you stand? Well, we've been following this problem for 35 years. Actually, if you look at it from the beginning of the Korean War for closer to 70. Uh, so th there's really nothing new under the sun in this regard. Uh, and likewise, there's very little new about this debate. There are some people who believe that North Korea has always been acting out, uh, seeking a, a peace treaty or a piece of paper or an end of war declaration or better relationships with the United States. Um, and there are others who believe that North Korea has never given up on its long-held ambitions to unify the Korean Peninsula by force, something they tried uh, back in June 25th of 1950. Um, you know, one way or the other, the situation today uh, leans much more towards North Korea being a, a hostile actor rather than North Korea being a seeker of peace. Uh, the declarations that have come out of Pyongyang in the last several weeks uh, indicating that South Korea is no longer a partner for peace, but rather the nation's number one enemy, make that pretty explicitly clear. And as if to put an emphasis point on it, uh, they destroyed some of the symbols like the arch you talked about there. So there's no question the inter-Korean relations are on a low point right now. So relations on a low point, but as you say, in some ways, it's also kind of business as usual in this decades-long conflict. I wonder what you make also of the kind of steady buildup of arms then in North Korea. If, 
is there really a possibility in that sense that they are preparing for war or could it be something else, simply grandstanding or for that matter, making weapons to sell to Russia? So for almost the entirety of my professional career, the international community has been concerned about North Korea's nuclear program. They've been concerned about North Korea's missile programs, uh, their chemical and biological weapons. And again, there have been some who believe that these were just bargaining chips, things that North Korea was trying to use in its efforts to pursue peace. Uh, I think that is a very difficult case to make today. Um, one of the things that has really changed isn't what's happened in Pyongyang or what happened in Seoul, but what's happened in the broader international environment. Uh, throughout most of the 90s and 2000s, even the 2010s, uh, Russia and China were partners along with the United States, the UK, Europe more broadly, uh, South Korea and Japan in working to engage North Korea and to limit their nuclear and missile programs. Today, that is simply not the case. And so if you're asking me what's different today, uh, it's that Russia and China are both far more supportive of North Korea giving North Korea far more leeway than they have had at any point in the last 40 years to pursue more what we would consider to be provocative or hostile policies. Uh, and that's a, that's a dangerous situation to be in. There's no checks. It's one of the important checks and balances that is no longer there. Well, just to follow up on that, particularly when it comes to China, I mean, giving North Korea leeway is one thing, but actually, you know, a drumbeat towards any kind of war or actual actual conflict is quite another, isn't it? I mean, do we actually expect what do we what do we think China might be doing behind the scenes? How far would they want North Korea to push this? So here I think there is a continuing distinction between Russia and China. China's priority has always been, you know, stability, stability, stability. They did not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons. They don't want North Korea to have long-range missiles. They want stability in their region for them to continue to pursue their economic goals. China itself right now is a little bit more interested in provoking the United States, in distracting the United States. And so if you just spin out various scenarios on the South China Seas and the Taiwan Straits, you can see scenarios in which a conflict on the Korean peninsula that took place simultaneously with something on Taiwan or the South China Seas or with India would be advantageous for China. That said, I still see China as a relatively responsible actor who still wants stability in this region more than anything else. Russia, on the other hand, has had a dramatic reversal. Russia, through most of the Cold War era and even 30 years into the post-Cold War era, was a country that had built this international arms control regime with the United States and so really cooperated closely with the U.S. and the international community on resisting North Korea's nuclear program and its missiles programs because they built the system that North Korea was violating. Under Putin, however, today, clearly Putin needs North Korean armament, their missiles, their artillery shells, and they're getting them right now, and they're also pretty much nihilists at this point who are who are just looking to kind of burn things down. And so I think Russia is far less a responsible player when it comes to the Korean Peninsula than they have been in the past. Professor Gordon Flake, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio.
Now, will the International Court of Justice order provisional measures in the case brought by South Africa accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza? We'll likely know soon. To help us understand where things stand now, Monocle contributor Marissa Mazria Katz spoke with Brown University professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies Omer Baratov for his take on the case. I wanted to start with your piece in the New York Times, which was written in November last year. It said that there's no proof that genocide is taking place, although it's likely that war crimes or even crimes against humanity are happening. Has anything changed since you wrote that piece? Well, what changed was, uh, first of all, the number of civilians and other Gazans killed expanded dramatically. So we're speaking now about probably 25,000, of whom at least two-thirds or more civilians, of whom about half are children. So that's one thing. The second thing that's changed is that the vast majority of the population is meanwhile being displaced. And third, this population now is living under conditions of basically a humanitarian disaster. And if you try to to understand that in terms of uh, international humanitarian law, my view is that the way we understand it now depends in part on what happens next. That is, if the population can return and its places of residence can be rebuilt, and the Israeli forces are replaced by other forces, by an international force or whatever it might be, then this might not end up being defined as forcible removal, which is the international legal term for ethnic cleansing, and genocide. If this is not reversed, then things will get worse very quickly, and either people will die in large numbers there, or will flee from there, and that would then mean that all the operations carried out by the IDF from the beginning of what they called removing populations just for their own safety will actually be reinterpreted as forcible removing removal slash ethnic cleansing and genocide in the sense that people, uh, the Palestinian people living in Gaza has been, there was an attempt to destroy them in whole or in part by removing them from these areas and not allowing them to return. About a month after your New York Times op-ed came out, South Africa claimed in the International Court of Justice, which is the highest judicial body in the United Nations, that Israel was committing genocide in Gaza. What's your take on the case, given where we are now, after hearing each side? Well, first of all, I think that the South African case, the 84 pages that they submitted, was very detailed, very well documented, very well argued, and they made a strong case. And they did the same in the court itself when they presented the case. I also think it it, it was an important move. I think it was important first because it allows us now to see a panel of distinguished judges, an important uh, part of the UN, deliberate whether this is genocide or not. And secondly, because this will take a long time. I mean, it could take them five years. But they will also, possibly in the next week or two, issue provisional measures. And those will be on the basis of a plausibility of the charge, not that they are finding one way or the other. Uh, And that will have, I think, significant political consequences. Could be that this would go to the Security Council. The United States may veto these measures, but it's going to put the U.S. in a very uncomfortable position, and it may actually 
limit supplies of munitions to Israel because of state laws in the United States and elsewhere forbidding states from selling munitions to countries suspected of breaches of international law. I, I was not surprised by the Israeli case, as it was put there, nor was I persuaded by it. I think rhetorically it was, you know, with the usual flourish, but I was not persuaded by the case itself, which doesn't mean that they will necessarily find that this is genocide, but simply that the arguments being made by Israel, I did not find persuasive at all. They claim such things as the people issuing such statements genocide statements, which are cited profusely in the South African report, were marginal people, were not people with executive authority. And that's simply not true. Uh, these statements were made by the Prime Minister and the Minister of Defense, who have direct executive authority over the military, and then by military personnel. The only point they made that may be taken up by the ICJ is a technical point, I think, and I'm not a legal scholar, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this only as a historian, is that there may be a question whether there was officially a dispute between Israel and South Africa over genocide. And for the ICJ to actually consider the case, uh, it has to be persuaded that there's a dispute between two countries over it. Regardless of the decision, Netanyahu's stance has been, one could say, that he's inured to these kinds of proceedings. But do you think that this, plus the chorus of protests around the world, has affected his overall strategy? Netanyahu is considering two things. First of all, the stance of the U.S., which is really the only one in international relations that matters immediately to Israel. And secondly, his domestic position. He's inured, as you said, to this international position on what is going on because of the United States. If the United States changes its position, let's say it does a veto a provisional measures by the ICJ, or let's say it says it is restricting supply of munitions to Israel for technical reasons or for blatantly political reasons, uh, then he's not in Europe because he can't do anything about that. Uh, so his whole bravado vis-a-vis -vis the United States depends on the administration not putting pressure on him or not sufficient pressure, that's all. Domestically, he's obviously speaking from two sides of his mouth, first because that's, he's been doing that for years, and secondly, because anything that he says that would suggest some kind of compromise, uh, some kind of negotiations with the Palestinians, his coalition will fall. If his coalition falls, he may end up in jail. But he won't come up with any plan whatsoever. What that plan can be, it has to be a political plan. And I think that the United States has to play a much more active and aggressive role in this, which it is not playing right now. Thank you so much for speaking with me, Professor Bartov. Marissa Mazria-Katz there, speaking with Omer Bartov. Now, it's been almost 24 hours since the Oscar nominations were released, and as per usual, it seems, what started with reports of no surprises has shifted to focus on those who did not get nominated, namely Barbie director Greta Gerwig. Also this morning, we've had the French César nominations released, with Anatomy of a Fall leading the way. Well, joining me to discuss all of this here in the studio is our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Faye, let's... 
start with kind of Barbenheimer round two, I suppose. Oppenheimer beat Barbie this time. What do we make of it? I am not surprised. I think Oppenheimer this year is the clear favorite. Because, Chris, one thing that people are forgetting, I mean, Barbie did tremendously well with the critics and in the box office. I think it's been the most popular film last year. But Oppenheimer as well. I mean, uh, the box office was almost a billion dollars for a three-hour kind of biopic. That's that's quite a lot. That was a big surprise. So I understand why the Academy would give to nominations for the film but you know for all those Barbie fans who were a bit worried I'm like don't worry Barbie had eight nominations including Best Picture and although Margot Robbie is not there for Best Actress she is the producer of the film so if he wins Best Picture which there is a slight possibility she would win an Oscar as well at the same time, what do you make of Greta Gerwig's treatment in particular when it comes to this? I mean, is that also partly just this, when you talk about, you know, Oppenheimer, it's no surprise in the sense that we often have dramas over comedies at the Oscars. Is that part of it or was there something more there? A little bit, yes. Uh, but even though it's been a good year for comedy, so from the best picture, 10 nominees, four are comedy, which has kind of a record in, in the last decade or so. But for best director, talking about Greta, sure, I, I did like Bar. Barbie. It would have been nice to see her there. But look who's there. Justine Triette from Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, you know, and especially people are trying to say, well, we need more female directors in the nominations. I absolutely agree. But we shouldn't forget as well that it's been a record year for women when you look at Best Picture. Uh, there are three films in here that have been directed by a woman. That's a record ever. Uh, so, of course, we have Past Lives. Uh, you know, we have Barbie. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite uh, interesting that it's been a good year for women. So no Greta. But overall, I think it's been a success. Well, and you did mention Anatomy of a Fall there. Let's look a little more closely at that. Also, because the one thing sort of in common with the Oscars, if you will, the French Césars were released this morning. Anatomy of the Fall is the big one in that too. Absolutely. I mean, I love it. And Chris, if you may ask, that's my personal favorite. It's an excellent courtroom drama, but there's so much more than that. It's the way it's been filmed. Uh, and it's funny, it is a French film, but there, you know, the film is in French, in German and in English. Uh, and, and I'm very glad to say that Sandra Huller, a German actress, she's been nominated for Best Actress for this film in particular as well. So it's kind of, it's a very globalized film in that sense. And I think Sandra, she is amazing. She deserves the award. I would give the Best Actress Award for her. Uh, and of course, no surprise here that it's been uh, one of the leading films in the Césars with 11 nominations. Uh, and one thing that I would like to add, Chris, what a great year for Cannes. Uh, of course, uh, Anatomy of a Fall won the, 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 the Palme d'Or in Cannes, uh, but also other films that premiered in Cannes are doing very well at the Oscars, including the very bleak but excellent Holocaust drama, The Zone of Interest. So, again, France is doing all it can with, it, with their soft power there. Oh, it can. Was that a <laughs> pun intended there? I wonder what the, uh, beyond that, what is the state, do you feel then, of... The French film industry, Cannes is one thing, but also the fact that this is a sort of a French film. What else did we learn in that sense from the Césars? It's been a good year uh, for French film. Uh, I was looking at the numbers of the box office last year. It did increase uh, by 19%. And Chris, just so you have an idea, in 2022, the top most watched films in France in the cinemas, there were no French films. We're all kind of Hollywood fair. But last year it changed. There's been three French productions in the top 10. Of course, 
not an atom of a fall because it perhaps is a little bit more art house, but we have the latest Asterix and Obelix as well. And one thing that is quite interesting, I was reading that the French are exporting their films, including an animation which I haven't seen, but it's called uh, Miraculous, the movie. Uh, so they're also very good with animation. So it's quite interesting. It's been, it's been a good year, good year for French cinema. Mm, well, and just finally on that, Faye, when you speak of exports, I just wonder what your sense is of kind of international releases, different different countries being watched in different countries around the world. Are we seeing more of that than ever before and also being awarded at award ceremonies? I think so. And the classic example, Anatomy of a Fall, winning uh, the Palme d'Or and potentially and potentially an Oscars. And Chris, just look at the best director here. We have Yorgos Lantinos with Poor Things, which after Oppenheimer was the most nominated film of 11 nominations. He's a Greek director. We have Justine, uh, French. Uh, we have a film, Past Lives in Best Picture. And although I believe it's an American production, Half of the dialogue is in Korean. So the academy is becoming more international. That's undeniable. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you very much for joining us. This is The Briefing. The Serpentine Pavilion here in London is entering its 23rd year, a tradition that sees a different designer picked each year to build, well, basically whatever they want in Kensington Gardens. But the hope is, of course, to leave a lasting impression. This year will be the turn of South Korean artist Min Suk Cho, and the first visual renderings of his design were unveiled this week before the grand unveiling in June. Well, for more, I'm joined now by Monocle's design editor, Nick Manis. Nick, thanks for joining us. Just start by maybe tell me about the 22 other pavilions that have been built. I mean, what do designers generally try to do with this space? Yeah, I mean, I think... It's all about testing ideas, testing architectural theories. This is sort of like the chance to, uh, I mean, it can kind of go both ways. It can be for an established architect to really, you know, put a footprint down on what their architecture and design ethos is. Uh, But it can also be for emerging designers to, uh, you know, and they're usually very, very talented emerging designers, but to sort of put themselves out there. This really can can sort of put you on the world stage. I mean, previously, Zaha Hadid, Oscar Niemeyer, Rem Koolhaas, all these amazing architects have taken place, uh, have participated, rather, in the Serpentine Pavilion uh, Commission. Uh, but then also last year's winner, Lena Gottmey, and, and this year's uh, winner, Min Suk Cho, are both sort of younger, emerging architects and designers. So you kind of got this this split. It's certainly in recent years has moved towards these younger designers. And how big a deal is this for them? Can you kind of describe, I mean, what kind of, how big a ticket, I guess, is this for those who win? I mean, it's it's huge. It's sort of, it, I guess, again, it puts you, if, if we look at Min Suk Chu, who's the founder of a soul-based design studio called Mass Studies, who are, you know, they're, they're active, they're busy around the world, they are well-known, but they're, they're probably not as well-known as Zaha did. But I think this sort of puts those, those people in the conversation with these, uh, you know, huge, enormous, important names. So this will be Min Suk Cho's first building, as I understand, in the UK. Tell me about a little more. You described him a little bit there, but tell me a little more about the artist, the designer, what he's kind of known for. I mean, really, uh, I guess, rooted in South Korean traditions. And you, you can kind of see that in this new uh, pavilion. He's, he's referencing uh, the Mand- Madang, which is a, a sort of central courtyard found in a typical traditional South Korean house. Uh, and, and I guess in this instance, they have grouped uh, five individual structures around this central courtyard. And it is really playing with those those themes, uh, looking at how South Koreans live and have lived and how that can be applied to, uh, yeah, different contexts. 
Well, and that was in a way my next question, kind of how, in what sense you feel like a design like this, I mean, the idea of these always is presumably to have to leave a sort of longer term impression, uh, inspire other designers as well. What What is your sense of kind of what this design might do? So, I, I mean, this really, for me, is about interrogating that relationship between the interior and exterior spaces. So, what roles can outdoor living places play in our lives? Uh, in in this context, it is about, I guess, the blurring of that boundary. You, you move between, uh, you know, a, a space that's a dedicated library, that's what one of the pavilions is going to be, into a, a courtyard area where you can sit and, and read a book. And it's, it's really certainly building on, I guess, this theme that we've seen in Pre, in, in recent years, particularly since the, the pandemic of the importance of outdoor space and how we use that and how we access that. And I think that's the direction it, this is going in. So there's an interesting mix of sort of South Korean traditions and indoor-outdoor mix that applies to, to everybody. I, I think so. I think it, it is that sort of, is certainly looking at, I guess, the global, uh, you know, design trend, maybe that's the word for, for uh, yeah, this, this urge to connect with the outdoors, but also but framing it through, I guess, the South Korean relationship with the outdoors and, and with the courtyard. Um, you know, and it, it, it's quite fascinating as well. I think the concept here is really, really strong, but certainly the first renderings have sort of not been overly well received. I think there's a, there's a little, uh, maybe maybe a view that this perhaps looks a little bit juvenile, but I, I would argue or I, w- I would request that people just give it time. I feel like often it's it's one of those things where, uh, you know, we, we, we rely so heavily on realistic computer-generated images, but the reality is that they are so far from what is built in reality. Uh, and, and I'd just be urging for patience and, and let's hold our judgment until June when, when this is actually built and, and put in place. Mm, well, then exactly on that point, just finally, when it comes to June... What? How do Londoners typically take to this? How many people do we have? Any sense of kind of how many people come to this? I assume you'll be there at some point. What? What's the sense of how much kind of buzz this builds in London? I mean, I think this is incredibly important in terms of like getting people uh, out there and 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 talking about architecture. People that wouldn't necessarily be involved in these conversations, and that's why I think this commission is so important, and the Serpentine Pavilion uh, program is so important. It's because uh, you know this is something that you know, your mum or your uncle or your cousin who really perhaps doesn't consider themselves much of an architecture aficionado might know about and might have an opinion on. And, and then in turn, the hope is that there's a flow-on effect uh, that these people all of a sudden become, not all of a sudden, but o- over time become more and more invested in their, their built environments and the impact uh, that, uh, that that it can have on us. And that's really what this is about. It's, it's sure, it's a little bit of a folly, but really it's also about having discussions about the way that we live and the way that we build. Nick Manise, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle Radio. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Monica Lillis. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Chris Chermak. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>